Today's guest is Michael Anschel, principal and co-owner of Otagawa Anschel, a design-build company in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In this conversation, we get into a wide range of topics, but one of the things we really focus on is the importance of transparency and how to do so with your clients and with your team so that it can be something productive for all parties. Michael, like our previous guest, Wally Staples, has some real innovative ideas around building. That's one of the things that drew me to having him on the show. I think you guys are going to find a few nuggets of value, so let's get to it. Michael, first, thanks for your time today. Appreciate you coming on. You're up in in joining us from Minneapolis, and uh, uh, David Gerstel, who introduced us, has has you know some amazing things to say about you and your company, the way you run it. So that's what we really want to talk about today. Talk about some of the transparency that you've incorporated into your philosophy as a builder. Um, before we get there, let's just start with a little intro on. Your company. Tell us a little bit about you and what you guys do. Sure thing. Uh, so, Michael Anshell, uh, I uh, I own OA Design, Build, and Architecture up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, this is our twenty sixth year in business. Wow! Yeah, it's kind of, kind of wild, isn't it? What, when did you start? Uh, so we started in ninety five. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it's really easy to keep track of how many years we're, you know, we're in because it goes in, you know, nice, easy five, five year increments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, and, and we're, we're designed, so we're design, build and architecture. We, we focus on, um, on the city. We work on a lot on homes built between like 1890 and 1940. Um, we grew up, we started out uh, doing uh, a lot of historic, historical renovation type stuff cut our teeth on that and then moved more into remodeling. And now we do a lot of really contemporary stuff, which is kind of funny. Um, and, and sometimes where we're blending the two together. Uh, and um, yeah, we got a good crew. We're nine, we're about nine, 10 people, depending on if we have interns. Um, up, I think 12 is the largest we've ever been. And um, we sit right around, you know, two and a half uh, on average, yeah. What walk us through the makeup of your team? You say you got nine to ten people. Who comprises that? Sure. So we we are we like to say we are true design build, uh, which means we have architecture design in house and we have carpentry in house. So we've got uh, three guys, three carpenters in the field, and a production manager who uh, supervises them and our subcontractors. And then we've got uh, project manager who oversees all of the projects, um, whether they're in design or construction. And then we've got our design staff uh, and there are four of us that sit on that side and then office management as well. So okay. it's, it's a good, it's about a 50, 50 break with a little bit, a um, little heavier on design where our structure is a little different. We've like everybody, we've played around with the years of trying to how to find like the perfect production manager mm -hmm. uh, who can talk to clients and, manage schedules and wrangle this, this, the guys. And we eventually split that into two roles. So we have project manager who is kind of 
oversees everybody, including me, which is kind of cool. Uh, nice. You got a boss. I have a boss. <laughs> and, um, and then production who doesn't interface with the client, you know, they're running schedules, running subs, running their carpenters. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. Who does interface with the client? That, uh, so the project manager overall, who is okay. a you know, phenomenal communicator and very empathetic and, you know, uh, you know, you could hit her with a bolt of lightning and she'd say, okay, cool. Got it. You know, <laughs> that that's a, a rare quality. Um, now what about you? Are you on the sales side though? Are you, you doing, uh, kind of the initial meetings or who does that on your team? So, uh, these are, these are great questions, man. Uh, our, um, our designers are, uh, designer architecture staff also do the sales. Got it. Okay. Um, so we work as a group. So regardless of who brought in the client, uh-huh. uh, they may or may not be the point of interface for that client. They may hand it to one of the, one of the rest of us and vice versa. If I, if I met with somebody on a lead, I might bring them in and then have them interface with one of our other staff more than, than myself. Yeah. Depending okay. on the nature of the project with a skill set. Yeah. What's needed. Um, okay. Behind the scenes, we all work together. My, my goal is, you know, to work as little as possible. Yeah. Right. Okay. So. <laughs> and how, how many hours a week are you working? This is a really weird year to ask that question. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel like I've worked more hours than I have in, in decades. Um, I tend to stay out of day-to-day operations and out of most of our projects. So I would say on, on a normal year, I'm putting it, I'm probably visible to my staff one to two days a week. Okay. That's like the gold standard for a business owner. I mean, that's what we're all wanting to achieve. How did, how did you get there just by building a team that is high, high performance and, and has kind of integrated roles where it, where it all can run without you or what's, what's the secret sauce there? Yeah. Not going (laughs) to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I know what the secret sauce is. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I had three years where I kind of retired. I didn't show up to work at all. Wow. And was out skiing and um, I've been doing consulting and I, you know, I have a whole other career in building science and, yeah. and lecturing and, 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 um, and consulting. So the, the secret sauce as best I can figure is to have really good systems in place that take care of like all of the repeatable normal stuff. Like how yeah. do you answer the phone, you know, b- basic stuff so that there's just no questions and that there's then like ultra consistency without throughout the organization. Um, and, but, but, the, but the systems alone do not do the trick. And more important than systems is culture. And so really worked on um, a culture that gives people the space to play, you know, that you're hiring people who are really good at what they do um, and and making sure that the thing that they're doing is comprised mostly of the stuff that that they like to do and that they feel like they can push further and further into whatever it is that they're exploring. So if it's, if it's design, pushing the boundaries of design. If it's, if it's craft, making sure that we've got really, um, you know, uh, complex and intricate trims so that they can work on, you know, curved archways and the things that they really love to do along with the general mix. 
um, and then make sure that that we're not dependent on any on any one individual. So we have like this kind of no sacred cows policy. Uh-huh. So information doesn't live on your personal laptop. You're always replaceable, not in a negative way, but more like if you got hit by a car, how do you ensure that the job keeps moving? So making yeah. sure that the information about the jobs is always being recorded and any one of us on the team can step in and take over if needs be. And so it's much, very much a team. We don't have commission at all. There's no like, you know, we want everyone to, to think of themselves as a group. So, yeah. That's pretty impressive. Let's get into that then. So I think part, <laughs> of, part of your culture and the cohesion you've built is through these transparent systems, right? Can you talk a little bit about, about what you mean whenever you say that you guys are a transparent company? Yeah, it, transparency means a, means, a, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And there are different levels of transparency. And, and I think a lot of folks, when they hear the word, they freak out. You know, they automatically <laughs> think, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. It's not happening. Uh, my, my people can't see how much I make or, you know, th- things like that. Um, which I always think is a little weird, right? You know, mm-hmm. you're, it's, or maybe it's, a little archaic. Yeah. And inauthentic, you know, it's, it's a, you're afraid of something that hasn't happened. Uh-huh. You're afraid of the possibility of something happening that hasn't happened. That's a lot of energy to put towards something that isn't real. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. A gun to your head. That's a real thing. Like I, I would be scared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I'm going to go huck off a cliff, I, you know, and I, I'm scared. I'm definitely fearful in that moment. Am I going to stick the landing? Yeah. But if I don't sure. put the skis on in the first place, because I'm afraid I'm going to fall. That's like that, that to me, that's how people are about transparency. They're like, they're not even willing to put it on to try it on to see how it fits because they're so stuck on the, the notion of being exposed. Um, and then you miss out on all the benefits as a result. Yeah. And the benefits are huge. And that, you know, bringing the team around to understand that took some time, but once they did, we would never, ever, ever consider going back. Um, Yeah. So, so you asked me what it means to be transparent uh, as a company. And I think that those different levels are, they're reflected in different aspects in different ways. So our, where we are going to be um, our financials, for example, if any one of our staff wanted to go, and look through our QuickBooks and our financials, that would be fine. Um, I, to date, no one has ever, no, none of my staff in 26 years has said, hey, I really want to get my head around how the company works in the background. You know, that they're, yeah. they're happy to not ever go and do that. You know, they're getting their 70, 80 grand a year. They're, they're good. Um, then there's transparency with the jobs. And this is an area that we found was really beneficial when we're estimating our projects, sharing those estimates with the field staff so that the field staff has a really, really strong understanding of the parts and pieces that went into um, the cost of the project and what we have allocated for each of those tasks. So if I've got 14 hours of demo that I sold, you know, for six, $638, they see that 14 hours and they know that that's what's been budgeted for time for that task. Okay. And it helps, helps bring them on board instead of they're just thinking, oh, I'm just showing up today. Yeah, the boss is making the money and I'm doing the hard work kind of thing. Yeah. 
you think that's the biggest benefit of your transparency? I, I don't. I think that's a minor benefit. What do you think I, is the biggest? <laughs> the biggest benefit? I'll give you two. I'll give you two, the two biggest benefits. Even better. Um, the first biggest benefit is internally, we have a really strong understanding of uh, where our profit is on a job and where it is not. Really, really solid. I can tell you on day one of the job, what we're going to legitimately take as profit for the company, not overhead, not salaries, not a, like this is the profit. This is the bit that we will mm -hmm. take for the company. Um, and at the end of the job, that profit's going to be intact. If I've taken a hit on it, it's going to be pretty minor. But we'll know. But we'll know if we need to where we can and how much of a hit we can take before we are truly not profitable on a job. That is the one thing that, for anybody listening to this, I'd say it's the number one reason to to be transparent is because it really gets you in front of your numbers in a very, very different way. And Gerstel's book, uh, Nail Your Numbers is a really, I mean, he, he really lays out how to go through and estimate in a, in a, in a way that would allow you to be transparent. And I think most of our industry doesn't do that. Most of our industry uses things like um, gross margin markup, you know, mm -hmm. like 1.68 or 1.45 multiplier on cost of goods sold, which is sloppy and kind of a just, it's just a stupid way to estimate. It works, you know, Yeah. like the snowplow works to get down a mountain, but right. you know, it's not, it's, um, it's not accurate. And it, it, anyway, there's lots of reasons to hate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other, the other biggest benefit is that, um, the client, uh, the client sitting on the same side of the table as you are, and you're able to fill fulfill that role as advocate, advocate to the client, right? You're at, yeah. you're advocating, sorry, for the client to the industry, <clears throat> and that's really the role of a contractor. At the end of the day, yeah, we our job is to guide them through this messy, messy little world of ours, mm -hmm. um, and deliver a product that. Um, that resembles the thing that, that that's in the drawings, right? And and for some of us, we helped create those drawings. And so, you know, it's about creating that vision or that space, blah, 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 bringing it to life, yada, yada. But it's the nuts and bolts part of it that's messy. And that's the reason that we're in the, in the mix is because the homeowner doesn't understand the difference between a screw and a nail structurally, but we do. Right. And we also know that Bob, Bob gets rip roaring drunk on Sunday. And that's why we don't schedule him to do the delicate work on Monday. Uh -huh. <laughs> Bob is not one of my employees. It's just a, just a, a made up thing, but. <laughs> you know, what's, what's interesting is messy is a great word to use though, you know, because it is, and that's, it's messy and it's stressful too. And it, it's easy, you know, contractors, I think it's, it's easy to get uh, a little bit pulled in to some of that and treat it in a negative sense. But the truth is, that's why we all get paid. If this was easy, mm -hmm. we, we wouldn't have jobs, I don't think. Um, and that's our job is to quarterback the process. And I like your analogy of, or your philosophy of 
advocating for the clients. Yeah. It's, it's a really remarkable thing when the client, I'm, I'm guessing this has probably happened to you on a project where the client says, how do we bring the cost down a little bit? Mm-hmm. Right. They got oh, this idea. All, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and how awesome it is to, to hand them the computer and say, well, let's figure this out. You know, here, mm-hmm. here's the estimate. There's no markups. Nothing's marked up in it at all. If, if you can see a solution there, then let's do it. If there's yeah. a less expensive way to achieve, I don't know, item X, then let's, then let's do that without sacrificing quality, obviously. Yeah. It, it helps to, to share, like, here's your total cabinet package from the cabinet maker. And you got five grand in there is for this pantry thing. Maybe we just do shelves. Yeah. So they're they're with you, and you are at no point ever feeling like, oh man, the client's reducing the project cost, and I'm losing profit because I had profit tucked inside that cabinetry. Mm-hmm. Your profit is in a completely different section in the estimate; it's not even being looked at. Yeah. Now I forget. Do you guys do fixed price or cost plus? So we do we do fixed price. We do lump okay. sum. So when we're in construction, we're, we're no longer open book. Yeah. But, but up front you are, which is, yep. that's exactly how we do it as well. But if a client asked us to be uh, open book, we, okay. Yeah. You know, we've done cost plus. It's really easy because it's, we're already set up to do it. Yeah. I, I just don't think that most clients really want to spend time looking at the numbers once they've made their decision and they're good with the numbers as long as it doesn't change. I think everyone's okay. happy. Yeah. And the less conversations there are around money, I think the happier everyone is. Yeah. And that, that's exactly why I don't like cost pluses because I just don't like having to go back, have money conversations over the entire project. Right. I prefer to have it one time upfront before you actually sign the contract. And then as long as things don't change, like you just said, everybody's happy. And if you're good at what you do, if you're good at estimating and you got a solid contract, then, then things shouldn't change. And you hit the nail on the head there when you said, if you're good at estimating. Yeah. And, and, a, and a lot of us aren't, which is, you know, an area of, of needed growth for probably a lot of us, but you know, we, I mean, when I say we estimate, we actually, we just hard bid everything. So, so we, We'll estimate a few things, but we're maybe even lazier than we need to be. We just go get hard bids from our subcontractors. So we're not having to estimate and take that. So we take the guesswork out. When we go show our transparent budget up front for foundation, that number reflects a hard bid from our foundation contractor. Is that the way you guys do it? It's the same way that we do it. Um, and if there's, it, it, yeah, I, we're on the same page there completely. I think that that's a really good way to operate. The sub is secure in their number. We're mm-hmm. secure in our number. The homeowner's secure in the overall number. Everyone's operating with a sense of calm. Yeah. And and we the, for the sub, then they also know that they don't have to come back and justify what they actually did. And on some projects, they're going to do better. And some projects, they might they might take a bath. But overall, right, month over month, year over year, the sum total of all of those by operating in that fixed environment is beneficial. Right. Yep. Yeah. The, I think that we also have circumstances where we're, where we have unknowns or where we feel like 
um, locking it down is is uh, potentially a problem. But but that's for very small areas, and they've got tight fences around them. You know, mm-hmm. you might say we know there's something funky going on here. We can't tell till it's open. So the plumber's going to say, look, uh, best case scenario will be here, but potentially we could have five or $6,000 more that needs to be addressed. We'll know when we've opened it up, but now we've really drawn a box around that number and and it can, we can just flow that through to the client and say, here's what the plumber came back with. Here's their paperwork. And the, and this is, this is the change order that will be reflected and it's easy. So on a, on a fixed price contract, those things that you can only put a box around, you can't put an actual pin to it, you know, a, a number to it. Do you just treat those as allowances? You just put those in and say, listen, here's it. We're going to put our plumbing line item as an allowance, but we think it's going to be in this range, but because we can't exactly identify it, it needs to be an allowance that will, that will float based on <laughs> what we find. Is that how you do it? If we need to, yeah, or we'll okay. or we'll isolate a portion of it uh, as a contingency. We might say, let's put let's put five thousand dollars into this project for contingency, and uh-huh. when we run into something, we'll let you know, and we can pull from that contingency pot up until the point that we can't. I got it. Okay, um, but I think that there's there's a huge, uh, yeah. I want to make sure listeners don't take that as like a hall pass to like do that for every. <laughs> section because man that'd be that then that would just be a mess right you, you really oh, yeah. avoid doing that um but to to the larger point of transparency if you went through the estimate together mm-hmm. and they they know what the numbers are and you you get into that once in a year project where things are going wrong left and right right mm-hmm. you opened up the walls and yeah holy hannah this is wrong. This is wrong. And we had no way of knowing closed wall conditions are all over the place. We've got to sit down and, and really rethink portion of this project. They've already been through the estimate. They're already really clear on what was set aside for each of those parts. And if the trades guys are coming back and saying, I've got to do this additional work because it's really easy for the client to accept and understand that that's something that is above and beyond what we had estimated because we did that together. The benefits on that, those two pieces alone, right? Knowing where your profit is and not, and, and getting rid of like the pain point part with the client, that should be enough to sell anybody on a reason to go uh, and be. Well, yeah. So, so let's, let's bring this conversation home now for the guys who have zero transparency in their company right now. Tell us that what's the first step somebody should take to come up just a little bit more transparent if we're going with baby steps here. Initially, uh, <clears throat> so I, I think initially baby steps, um, if you're not ready to do it in front of the client, think of it like the COVID-19, right? The extra 19 pounds that's sitting right there right now. Uh-huh. Uh, if I was to fly to Mexico right now, I don't know, taking off my shirt, I wouldn't be too proud. <laughs> so, so before you're ready to take off your shirt to the client, that sounds awful. Uh-huh. No, I, I like this. Let's go with this analogy. Right? You, you, you want to have a little definition there. You don't yeah. necessarily be ripped, but some definition would be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, if, so, if, so if, that's, if that's metaphor for your estimate, uh-huh. getting detailed in your estimate is, is that first step. Okay. 
really going through and whether it's using a checklist process um, or an estimating software to make sure that you're hitting all of your lines, your drive time, your site prep, uh, 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 pulling the permit, like everything that you can think of that goes into it and calling it out. So it's just like ridiculously detailed. But this, the, the second part of that is what I call cost of project execution. So we've got co cost of goods sold. I think everyone's pretty familiar with that. That's your bids from your lumber yard, your, your trades guys, right? Most people are used to taking those numbers and then doing a 40% margin or something on top mm -hmm. of that. Yep. Transparency says you can't do that anymore. Now you need to figure in the cost of project execution. So now you're adding in line items for your management. Your construction management is now this is all above the line. So uh, materials procurement, mm -hmm. how many hours, what's that cost? Uh, client meetings, client management, subcontractor management, staff management, uh, site inspections, uh, quality assurance, all of the things that you're gonna be doing on this project to make sure that it is executed appropriately. This is what we actually get paid for. This is that big part. That all goes above the line now. So it's cost of goods plus cost of project execution. And then that times whatever you want your profit to be. Right. Okay. So like for us, 18%. That sits over here. This is the last bit. It's really important. You got to add your overhead in. And overhead uh, largely is a function of time, right? Mm -hmm. Or a project that you can execute per year against what your actual overhead is. And then that you place that in there as well. So overhead is a line and profit as a line. But the goal is to really drill down and understand that bathroom model, that kitchen remodel, that addition, that new build, whatever it is, how long does it really take me to do that job? And how many hours do I really spend meeting with clients? And how many hours do I spend responding to emails and get paid for that time and put that time into the estimate? When you're transparent with yourself and your staff and, you're, um, and you get comfortable with that, then I think the next step is um, letting the client know that you know, you're transparent and if they'd like to see how the estimates put together, you're happy to do it. Um, in the, early, in the early days, I used to print out the whole estimate and it would sit on the table right around our fourth design meeting where we were working through some of them getting into materials. And we'd, we'd done our kind of first round of, of intensive estimating and we'd say to the client here, you know, here's where the project's at. You know, we're, we're, we're at, you know, I don't know, uh, $184,000, 68 cents. And they'd say, okay. And that would either be a good, okay, or a bad, okay, whatever. There might be a conversation. And, and having the estimate on the table, like within an arm's reach that they could flip it open, they would inevitably reach over and flip it open, maybe look at a couple lines. And that was it. Just, just knowing that they could access it made the difference. And the people talk about building trust. Nothing builds trust like being transparent about what the costs are. So. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned that I think is a big benefit to this, 
this intentional way of constructing your estimates. So as opposed to applying 40% markup or whatever it is, building an actual, a real estimate, all right, that, you know, Gerstel advocates that has all of your different line. One, it forces you to think about all of your different cost centers in your business, not just cost of goods sold, but like what you just mentioned, client meetings, that is a cost, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it, it forces you to think about all those different cost centers. And then with each project, I think it helps you make better project level decisions about whether you really want to take on a project even whether it makes sense. So for instance, you know, with client meetings, if you've got a client, it forces you to actually kind of think about the, the nature of how you interact with that client. And mm-hmm. some clients are, are, you know, more high maintenance than others. So it forces you to think about, <laughs> all right, well, what do we put in here for these client meetings? Are we going to be meeting? Are we going to be responding to emails four times a day? Because if so, we may need to rethink that number you know, or, or on a more logistical basis, if you've got a project that's really far away, I think you and I don't necessarily have this so much. We, we stay pretty geographically centered, but you know, a lot of builders will take on projects in other places. So you got to think about then, um, if you got a project that's going to take two hours a day for one of your, you know, for your team to drive to and from, mm-hmm. how do you price that? And it forces you to think about more accurate pricing. And then from there, just help make better project level decisions, not just on how to price them, but is it, is it best for your pipeline? Is it best for your project? Right. Are it best for your company? Thinking about your pipeline. I mean, that, that's, that's, um, that's another level, right? That's a whole nother level beyond just being transparent is understanding which projects your company should and shouldn't take on for the health of the organization. Profitability is so often tied to that pipeline and project type right yeah it's uh, that's a that's a really yeah that's really critical well and that's for us you know we're, we're a boutique builder in austin we we do higher level homes higher level projects like luxury homes you almost exclusively new construction for me it's as important to it's maybe more important to define what we don't do versus what we do because if you don't have that defined and you, and you drift into space where maybe you're not best to operate, we only get for us, you know, we get 10, 10 cracks mm-hmm. at, at bat each year with mm-hmm. projects. Cause that's, you know, we're taking on 10, 10 projects a year that, you know, our target is probably minimum $2 million um, contracts on, on each of those 10 projects. So we know that we don't like to take on projects less than that. You know, we don't like to go out of this geographical center because if so, it's going to take way too much time and we might then no longer be able to do 10 projects that year. We might be able to do nine because we've got this really good, what seems like a good project, but it's eliminating so much of our, you know, my superintendent's capacity that now we got to shrink his. So now we just went from 10 cracks at the bat to, you know, to nine. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's the, the thing that really has occurred to me in the, you know, later years of my build, I made this mistake many times. It's, it's that you got to be so careful and guarded with what you take on because you don't get many, many opportunities each year. And if you go fill one of those opportunities with a mediocre project, it's, it's 10 sales a year. It's not like you're selling, you know, screws or widgets, you know, 10 million a year, because if you do that, you, you know, you mess up one transaction or what, or whatever, not a big deal. You mess up one transaction in our business and it's 
flowing directly major results to your bottom line. Right. Yeah. That's it. And there's that distinction between being volume-based, right? Volume-based companies function very, very, very differently than those of us that are doing the 10 to 20 projects a year less even. Yeah. And you bring a great point up there also that who you choose to work for, right? Which architect demands so much more of your time or which architect produces really good drawings versus drawings that are incomplete and you know you're going to be resolving details. And if you look at, if you were to say, this one's two and a half, this one's two and a half, which one do I want? And knowing knowing from experience, like those post postmortems that you perform on your projects to determine where, which one was truly profitable. Yeah. That's, that's something that I think that so many of us don't take the time to do and to under, really understand what that long, long-term impact is to the company. Yeah. Well, and those are enlightening case studies. You're right. That, that postmortem, the case study after each project, you're always going to learn something every yeah. time, even if you've been doing it for 26 years, you're going to learn something. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's so true. And, 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 and knowing which ones are outliers, like which ones do you, do you just throw away and you're like, we're not going to do a postmortem on it. Nothing about that was <laughs> normal. I don't want it in the mix. I don't want it in the data set, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that sometimes too. I mean, it's, you always have aberrations in this in this business because it's the nature of what we you know do no no project is the same so whenever you have those case studies the the postmortems looking at things that occurred you got to be able to determine all right is this something that has a likelihood of occurring again and we need to create some sort of process to account for it in the future or is it such an such an aberration that it would be unnecessarily yeah. constraining to create you know change because of it. And uh, we've had that philosophical debate on many, many different things over the years. We call it, we call it managing the gray, that, that gray bit, you know, it's like, here's, here's all of our work and here's like 80% of it and fits within this framework. And then there are these projects here. And if we tried to build systems around that and protocols for that, man, we would spend so much energy better to put that energy over here and then like just accept there there will be there will be these projects that will have these weird things happening unless you unless they have common traits like uh like i have an electrician that i really like and would you mind using them instead of your electrician to which yeah. the answer is no <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> we yeah. learned that one the hard way we have to well let's wrap this up our listeners who want to learn a little bit more about your company or maybe connect with you, how, how do we go about doing that? Uh, yeah. So you can find us uh, a couple of ways. Instagram, we are at OA builds and uh, always open for a conversation there. Okay. Uh, the uh, company is O is uh, uh, OA design build.com. That's easy. Yeah. Uh, if you uh, if you're a reader of uh, Pro Remodeler magazine, you can find uh, my articles in there periodically. I've got some predictions for 2021 in there that should be interesting. I'm tempted to touch on that, but that'll open up a whole nother episode. Maybe we maybe we come back to that in a few months. Yeah, and then um, ProTradeCraft.com. If you're familiar with ProTradeCraft, yeah. we just finished filming a 13 episode show on building resilience. Um, very cool. Nothing to do with transparency, everything to do with high performance building. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'm sure a few of us will go 
check that stuff out. So Michael, enjoyed visiting with you today. Light, enlightening conversation. I, I appreciate your philosophy. So thank you for sharing it with us. Likewise, I, I, I learned a lot today. It was good. Thanks, man. 